Hey everyone and welcome to Space 10 Radio, coming to you from Mexico City. Today we are focusing on tomorrow's materials. Can we repair our local environments by designing with materials that are in symbiosis with the places we live? The conversation explores how different approaches to sustainable, circular and regenerative design could redefine our relationships with materials, the land and each other. For this talk, we welcome material translator Sital Solanki, director and founder of Matter. Fernando Lapos, a designer who works with indigenous farmers in Mexico, and designer and visual artist Akanksha Deo Sharma, who works in-house at IKEA. They're in conversation with Space 10's lead creative producer, Elsa. Let's get started. Tonight, we are exploring uh, the big question of uh, can we repair our local environments by designing with materials that are in symbiosis with the places in which we live. And we have three amazing people that are here to explore that with us. Fernando Lapos, Sital Solanki, and Akansha Deosyarma. And um, each of them come from very different, uh, I would say, direction towards the, the topic of tonight, but they uh, also unite quite a lot, so I'm quite interested in see how much they agree or disagree here on this panel tonight. Um, but my first question of this, uh, this panel will be actually to you, Sital. Um, so you shared your, um, you, you um, in your practice have this uh, conclusion, if you will, of the trust, care and respect triangle where you talk about opportunities. And uh, I really want to understand uh, how can we imagine the materialities of our near future? Um, and where do we even begin uh, to think about what those materials or tomorrow's materials might be made from? So first of all, you asked something about like, how do we choose them almost? Like how do we decide what they are? And I think, for me, so much of that really comes from very simple exercise of listening and observing to what you already have around you, rather than looking externally or outwards towards something that is deemed to be cool and trendy. And a lot of the time that's kind of coming from places that have a lot of exposure to what the material world is coming to be. I would say namely Europe and the US. And I think when it comes to those spaces, it's really hard to then kind of say how that is applied into another context. <clears throat> Because I think contextually, we need to understand our own surroundings. And I think that, that word regional that we spoke about earlier actually also is the, the word that I would kind of describe as something that we have to build a relationship towards. So this exercise of listening and observing are some of the tools that I've developed in terms of like how to relate to a material to then therefore understand how we can work with them. So rather than forcing the material to do something that we expect it to do, the material always knows before we do. And so 
that it has a lot more knowledge and intelligence than we do about what the possibilities that they have. And so normally the material actually decides for us. And I would say when it comes to like making the decision as to what the materials of tomorrow are, it's already around you. It's already there. It's just how you work with it, how you apply it in one context and who it's for. Because I think we often forget to understand who this material is for and why it even exists. So why are we even making with this material? How are we actually understanding how abundant it might be? Or is it a very precious and rare material? And therefore not understanding like the scale at which it can actually be worked with. Because not all materials are meant to be scaled in a large scale. But I would say like all of these different ways of making decisions with the material is to do with one relating, one listening, one observing, and one understanding what your own surroundings are made of. That's a really, really beautiful way to put it, Sital. And um, actually that brings me to you, Fernando. Um, I know that in your practice, you speak a lot about regeneration and connecting with the farmers even. So I want to understand uh, how can material design redefine our relationship with the land and how can it be a tool for social reparation? Um, yeah, I think material design is, is not only about reconnecting with the land, but reconnecting with the people that are already understanding the land, you know. Uh, I, I think, you know, over the past century, we've seen a mass migration from the countryside to the city, you know, and, and, and the, the forecast for the future is, is that the cities are going to become even more mega cities. So, you know, the prognostics are even more people are going to leave the countryside. So I think that has to change, you know, I think we need more farmers. We need more people that are in contact, in constant uh, contact with the land. Uh, and the efforts to regenerate uh, the land go hand in hand with efforts to regenerate communities, you know? It's, it's like, like I said in my presentation, it's, it's about, uh, it's about uh, you know, the, the, the environmental crisis is a humanitarian crisis. So in order to really go beyond, let's say, human-centered design to look at nature, we have to diversify what human-centered design is. We have to cater and design for the communities that are still there. And this is a lot, a lot easier to do in Latin America, Africa, places where we haven't lost completely that touch with nature the way it has, have, the way it has happened in, in more developed economies. So I think um, in a way we should look at that advantage that we count in places like this, you know, because it's, it's really interesting. The craft is still there. The natural materials are still there. Uh, and we're in a very, very kind of like critical point in time where it's becoming trendy, <laughs> but it's not like we have to, you know, do an anthropological work to rediscover how things used to be made. They're still being made this way here. Do you see the designers as the new farmers? 
uh, I mean, unless they farm, no. <laughs> you know, they have to actually go and farm. So how do we get more people interested in the field of farming? You said that this, it's a fewer and fewer people farming. Well, I think we have to look at what just happened in the world, you know. We had two years where everything, you know, there was a, a massive handbrake put on the frenzy of how we were consuming, how we were living. I think it's the first time where we actually saw a little bit of a reverse migration to the countryside. And you have to look at why, you know, why, why did that happen? Uh, because people started to realize that they didn't want to live like rats in a city, you know, uh, in close proximity to one another, you know. So it, I think it's also, again, you know, going back to nature is about designing for the human. It's about that, that well-being, uh, that feeling of, you know, a, a release from all the tensions of urban living. So how do we get more people to become farmers? I think... I think it's just making evident that like it's a pretty good lifestyle if you're pa if you're patient. <laughs> that's uh, that's a really nice way to put it. Um, and uh, Akangsha, actually, in the last two weeks that we've had this pop up, we've been uh, speaking a lot about change. We've been speaking about changing our behaviors, our systems, our co consumerism, perception, processes, um, and many more. But what is the change that needs to happen within the field of material design, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's a pretty big question. Um, very grand, very wide. And I, I don't even think I have the answers. But that's exactly uh, what I'm getting at, is probably that as designers as well, we... Uh, need to work really closely with the um, researchers, scientists, biologists, anthropologists, um, technicians, engineers, farmers, um, to guide us, to help us make better decisions when we are designing something new. But uh, of course, uh, when I speak from the lens of one of my projects for Andring, um, I think for, for that project, the emphasis was on the rice straw, which is the agricultural waste, which is uh, right now being burnt in the northern parts of India. Um, and I think the first step is to be open um, and curious of being able to look at something that's considered waste as you know, a potential new resource material for the future, for now. Um, and I think, so in the case of Forensring, like it's, it was really much about, hey, like, um, could we do something with this material? Could we actually enable the farmers to, um, to look at what they see as waste right now as a, as a valuable source material for them as well? So it has been a lot of close cooperation with the farmers as well, with the organizations around, uh, with the policymakers, um, and of course with the designers and the product development aspect of you know, this material. So I think um, one of the things could be just to, yeah, um, experiment, push ourselves and change our perceptions of what is existing around us. Um, you could say, yeah, already existing waste materials around us because there is a lot. Like, you know, waste uh, material 
could be yeah the material of the future um, and the products uh, the products and the materials that are existing today especially the existing products are going to be the material banks for the future one of the things is waste materials but of course new materials as well equal research has to go into defining what is new as well um, yeah but there's a lot to, to I, feel like, down. I feel like there's a red thread though uh, through your answers here which is that we should be looking at what already exists and what already is so Sital I want to ask you um, what is the relationship uh, in your opinion between materials and local culture looking at some of those uh, relationships and in all those presentations uh, in all those uh, projects that all of you are working with it really taps into local culture and people uh, most of all so I want to understand what the relationship with materials and local culture is well, I think it's so evident in like all the residence projects, you know, all the artists that have presented their works here tonight. And there's such a connection to people, to the land, behavior, um, history, and also the practice of kind of like understanding craft. And that is so evident with all of the projects that you see here tonight and you start there you start to understand what something is made of and that's through how the what the land is made of and that's karen's project even with um, all the agricultural projects you know karen's really looking at like what the earth is made of and she's really understanding the geological kind of substrates that are kind of making up the land and what the qualities are and how that can actually inform something for a human, actually. And it's really in collaboration with your surroundings. And that is very, very localized. And so for me, everything really frames, everything centered around what is, what is something made of, whether it's your, the land, the person, the process, the outcome, for me, that's very localized, and it's really process-led, but it's also very much research-led, and it's outcome-led. And the trinity is people, land, process. Amazing. And I, I love that you mentioned craft as well, because I think that craft can both be uh, ancestral, but it can also be uh, new, and I think that I'm at least uh, interested in hearing what your, all of your thoughts on uh, technology in this equation is and maybe what role does technology, whether it's ancestral or emerging, play in creating or lifting up some of these materials or methods using these materials and are there any hesitations when it comes to new technologies? Um. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, technology is culture, you know? Uh, culture is about being able to share ideas and, and to as many people as you can, and, and once you share it to enough people, you know, it becomes culture. And technology is the same thing. It's, it's being able to find solutions, make those solutions available for a, a larger group of people, and then it's considered a, a new technology, you know? Um, so, 
yeah, we can, I mean, I don't think there's a way of going forwards or backwards with technology, you know. Technology is about finding solutions to problems, and sometimes that can be looking at how things used to be made, looking how things can be made in the future. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's really about that human, it's about what makes us human, you know, it's human ingenuity. Um, so, so I think, uh, you know, it's, I find that really interesting that we tend to see technology as almost like machine-like, you know, but it's, it's a very human thing. So just to give people some examples of that, what, what are some technologies that you use in your practice? Um, well, we look a lot around indigenous technology, you know, so for example, okay, we have this issue of, of the soil is completely ruined, you know, because, because of misapplied technology, you know, it was technology that made no sense within this context. So we, we you know, that was the introduction of, of chemicals, uh, you know, I work with this farming community, chemicals arrived. Uh, broke that indigenous technology that was very fitting to that environment and that caused a disaster, you know. So, for example, in my practice, we, we are looking at, like, permaculture. Permaculture is, indigenous permaculture is, is so sophisticated, you know, and, and it's this idea of combining plants together to get the best out of the soil. And probably the best example of that, I mean, I, th I think you've had Arca this week, you know, uh, what they do, uh, restoring the, the system of the chinampas, of these floating gardens, that is hydroponics at the highest level, you know? <laughs> and so sometimes I find, it, I find it funny to see how, you know, especially younger students or something, when they're tasked with coming up with, oh, what is the, the future of urban farming? They try to emulate like Dutch style, you know, container uh, vertical farms when we're sitting on top of what used to be the most advanced hydroponic system, you know? So I think that's, that, that's a good example, two good examples about looking at indigenous technology. So those are two great examples, both hydroponics and permaculture, that I think uh, not everyone would relate to as technologies, but definitely are. And uh, Akanksha, I would actually really like to uh, ask you the same question. You know, what are some of the technologies uh, that you have been working with in your practice? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, instantly I was thinking about um, uh, what I referred earlier, like when it comes to weaving. Uh, traditional uh, craft in India has been happening since many years, many generations. And it has primarily been woven. Um, weaving has been a man's profession. And clearly through just simple technological advancements, um, you know, how can we turn a horizontal loom into a vertical one? Horizontal loom uh, has been quite um, energy consuming, uh, exhausting. That's why, you know, uh, men have been doing it. How can we easy down the process? How can we enable, um, you know, everyone to be part of uh, learning a craft? So, you know, by, by working very closely with engineers, we have kind of uh, developed a vertical loom where now we are giving access to women to weave, like something that has not been done in India for a long time. But now, as we also see that when women are doing the jobs, when they are getting paid more, uh, not more, when they are getting paid for the same job, the money actually goes to, the, to raising their families, 
to raising their children to getting better health care and education, which has not been uh, so with men, if you actually look at the data. Um, so I think that is one of the finest examples of how can we include uh, not just communities, but genders and break the barriers and unlock new potential through simple technological advancements, even in craft. Yeah, actually, it's, it's a very similar uh, in principle thing of what we're doing in our workshop, you know. So, for example, all the cutting dies that we use to cut the shapes of the corn is all designed in the computer. They're cutting dies that are made with laser. Uh, and that allows everyone to become an equal craftsperson, whether men or women, in our workshop. So, yeah, there is, there is a holy grail and in a, in a very interesting point when you start to mix both technologies, ancestral and modern, you know. I'd also like to add this kind of very, very small distinction, but it's very um, maybe obvious, of technology and intelligence. They're two very different things, but they kind of imply the same thing. And I will kind of use mycelium as an example, because it's something that is so intelligent, and it is a technology. Thinking about nature as technology, now, mycelium is considered like the first, well, well, they call it the wood wide web, very cheesy name, but it's, a, it's the most advanced communication ever within nature. And it nourishes everything around it whenever it, it's required to. And what will always happen as well is like anything that sits above it will also be like decompose very naturally and fed into the system again and be used as nourishment as well. So this material is in, in, in a highly intelligent material, which means it's also technologically advanced and it's all natural without any uses of digital technology. Now, I'm only like posing this question of like what the difference is between intelligence and technology because so many materials are highly, highly intelligent. They will be naturally antibacterial, naturally antimicrobial, and you know, so on and so on. There's so many attributes a material can have. Nettle fiber is naturally antibacterial, for example. So there's so many ways in which we can kind of consider materials as technology, but it's coming from nature. So understanding how nature works then informs how a material can be a technologically advanced kind of application with this idea of intelligence, basically. It, sound, it seems like we should be using mycelium for much more than <laughs> what we already do. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I'm actually curious, why don't we see more of those materials in mainstream designs? Um, I think for me, the idea of mainstream is quite problematic from a perspective of this idea of a universal solution, or this idea of a material can solve the world's problems which we have kind of seen with plastic, and I'm not blaming plastic whatsoever because this material is actually incredible. It's just the way that it's been applied in a single-use state. And this material was seen as a material to provide the world's solution to packaging. 
and therefore the idea that it would be much cheaper to kind of ship things around the world and encourage like globalization to the max. And therefore, we are now left with so much to deal with, as we all know, and we have seen, and it's very visible. And so this is coming from a sing this idea of a single solution for all. And that is one mainstream idea, ideal or ideolo ideology, which isn't really taking into, the con into consideration of cultural nuance and cultural differences and what people actually need in these different countries or cultures and their behaviors and the associations that they have with certain materials or like what materials actually mean to them. And so we then lose culture. Culture gets lost, language gets lost, our behaviors have to change. And I think, yes, change is always going to happen. So I'm not discarding that at all. It's just more like respecting it, actually. And the idea of care comes into this conversation too. So if we're just considering mainstream, we have to understand at what scale is mainstream considered. So is it universal? Is it, you know, country specific? Is it like regional specific? Like what does mainstream, yeah, at what scale? If I, if I can... Uh put my two cents on that. You know, I think it's, it's I mean, now that you open the Pandora box of plastic, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just... Someone had to. <laughs> why, why did you have to do that? But, you know, but I, think, I think it's, um, I mean, if you look at it, you know, it's, it's about turning like something that is, I don't know how many meters under the soil, you know, into, you know, yeah, there's so many refining processes. It's not in every country, you know, it's like in, in very specific locations of the world, and yet it becomes the cheapest material ever, you know? It, I think when you're talking about, like, why don't we see more of these natural materials and biomaterials out there, it's because we are still living in an economical system where we never pay the right price for plastic, you know? Not, not in the sense of, like, the amount of damage that it's going to create and that we have to pay for that. I mean, there's, only, uh, there's also that. But we have to take into account that it is the most subsidized raw material, you know? We pay for it through our taxes, we pay through it through all of our government efforts, and we are sitting in one of the countries with the best example of that, you know? Um, to, without getting too political, we are starting to build the biggest oil refinery, you know, since the 1930s. And this is just banking into keeping subsidies on plastic for the next, I don't know how many years. So I don't think we're going to see natural materials become mainstream anytime soon on, uh, unless we have a drastic change in how we finance the production of our raw materials and we stop subsidizing plastic and we start subsidizing in a serious, meaningful way uh, the production of natural biodegradable materials. You know, until that doesn't happen, I don't see it becoming mainstream. It's interesting to talk about scale um, in this uh, context. And Fernando, I'm actually really curious to ask you a question. Is scale the enemy? <laughs> yes and no, you know, yes and no. Because, you know, I'm seeing a lot of really interesting projects in, in, in this six-week residency, you know, and, and I was at that point, 
my, my, my corn project actually started off as a, a, as a residency as well, you know, a two-month residency. So, you know, there's examples that, that these residents do actually work. Uh, but I think the biggest challenge is scale, you know. You can have the most interesting little sample, but how do you take that to, a, to an actual system? So there has to be a level of scale. It has to become something practical, uh, something sellable. Uh, I mean, we are, you know, you're not acting in vacuum. We are living in a capitalistic world, <laughs> right? So, so scale, scale is definitely, definitely important. But to, I, think, I think we have to, yes, put a cap about how big it can get. And, and, and local production, uh, you know, is always attached. I, I, think, I think if you're limited by a certain radius of where you're sourcing your materials, that should be your limit of scale. You know, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So how can we maintain affordability in our everyday objects while focusing also on sustainability and regeneration, in your opinion? Well, I would say affordability for whom, you know? I mean, it's not the same what the buying power of someone in Europe is compared to someone here. But for example, I'll give you a good example. Um, I've been furiously looking through the IKEA website trying to see what I could get here because I am quite addicted to IKEA products. Uh, so for example, shout out to the Ivar system, I love it. But I noticed, for example, there's, there's no baskets. There's no baskets anywhere in the IKEA uh, website of Mexico. No baskets. I haven't seen, I haven't seen many baskets. We have a live, live argument. Ikea Mexico. <laughs> Ikea Mexico. Yeah, they just opened, but yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think it's because there's no way that Ikea is going to be able to compete with the price of a Mexican basket that is woven in the corner of the street, you know? So, um, depends what you're looking for and depends how affordable you want to do it, you know? Because at the end of the day, the baskets that you're buying in Sweden are not woven by Swedish people, you know? So the, the price that you're paying for a basket in Sweden has to do with the fact that it was probably woven in India or in Mexico or in Brazil or, or to, you know, wherever. Yeah, so I actually, I feel like I need to hand it over to Akanksha now because uh, I'm interested in this question of scale. Um, is it possible for us to scale without coming back to these deconstructive practices that have shaped our lives since industrialization? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Sitel and I, and, you know, uh, you as well, like, we had a fabulous conversation about what is scale? How do we define scale? How big are we talking when we talk about scale? Is it global? Is it country? Is it um, city? Is it regional? Is the word that we were onto? Um, so I think, of course, there has to be some sort of scale, but how far, like, does it even make sense to uh, blow up uh, more than what it's required? So, of course, um, scale has to be there because with certain level of scale comes a level of impact. If you want to create an impact, of course, there has to be reasonable scale. So it could be, like you said, it could be restricted to where the materials are or maybe it has to do with the community, or maybe it has to do with, um, you know, um, the indigenous craft or the practices where it's limited to. So, yeah, sourcing local materials and being made 
by the local communities that are skilled in those crafts. Of course, scale makes sense in that level. Like if I'm working with social entrepreneurs in India, of course it's better to have 50,000 women embroider rather than 500 because the objective is to give as many uh, women or artisans a form of employment as possible. So it, it can't be like, okay, no, now, now we call a cap on 1,000 families. Like, so of course it needs to make sense. It needs to make sense for the people and of course for the planet, obviously. Thank you so much. And Sital, um, if you would be the first one to answer my last question, but I would actually like all of your uh, views on that. Now that you're coming from three very different places, Mexico, UK, and India, based in Sweden, maybe there's a duality there. But if we imagine our homes in, let's say, 2050, so we think about the future, what is around us? in terms of objects and their materialities? Um. Basically, I will, I'll use an example of a project that we did in Bali. <clears throat> and it's a hotel, independently owned by Indonesians. And it's 170 rooms, and it's catering to a really large community. Public spaces are huge, and we were commissioned to map the entire island of Bali of its materials and craftspeople. And with that in mind, the entire hotel was made with materials from Indonesia only. And this was done so affordably because labor is cheap. Labor is affordable. In the UK, labor is so expensive, it's obscene. And so it's like trying to understand what affordability is and sustainability is in different countries and like cultures, because I think with somewhere like Bali, with materials so accessible and labor being so affordable, it makes sustainability way more accessible and therefore it becomes something that is the norm. And you don't even label it that way, whereas in the UK it would be the complete opposite. It's like a marketing thing. But labor is obscenely expensive and it would never, I would never be able to do that project in London, ever. And at the same kind of scale or at the same kind of price. So I think it's really trying to understand like what accessibility of affordability is in these different places because it is definitely possible it just depends where that's what I wanted to add and I guess the last question yeah speaking into the UK again like if you imagine then being there and sort of in your local environment what would our homes in 2050 look like? Is there even any difference? Or have we started seeing some of those biomaterials or local materials um, used? See, what's so interesting about London, I think, is that it's so hard to understand what material from London is because we get everything. We can have anything we want all year round. We don't understand seasons there. 
we don't understand where these materials come from even, or like how it even travels to us. We're so blind to all of that. And that's quite challenging to understand like what is London made of, but actually I've been part of this really incredible project lately and it was just launched, um, just launched yesterday in press that IKEA and H&M have joined forces and created another brand called Atelier 100 which um, Marta has been a really big part of in terms of mapping materials of London in a 100 kilometer radius of London, um, manufacturing and also creatives. And basically with all of, all of those components, we're making a retail store in London which is hyper-local. Only all the products that you see in the store will only be coming from London. With, well, this 100 kilometer radius of London. And it's been fascinating, I can't even tell you. So it's actually made me fall back in love with London. And that's been quite a personal challenge. Um, <laughs> but I will say that it really highlights what London is made of. And it has many things. It's just not known because we're so used to like ordering things whenever we want. And so I think like, I'm hoping that this project will kind of highlight all of those aspects and maybe 2050 will like offer the opportunity to see some of those materials in someone's home. What are those materials? Yeah, we have rush, which is uh, a grass that is kind of by the canals and the waterways. We have um, a hemp farm, which is actually in Cambridgeshire. Um, what else do we have? Oh my God, there's so many, but like these two are, are very evident. And even like linen is coming back to the UK and things like this, so flax is something that's going to be accessible again. Um, mulberry silk is something that's coming back also. Um, yeah, there's just much to be discovered and it's, it's happening again. And I guess Brexit has been an enabler of that, <laughs> of sorts. But um, it's, it's really looking at what's around us rather than like thinking that it's always so far away. It's super fascinating to think about the materiality of the UK or London. Uh, because as you say, it's something that is quite far, maybe from our thinking. But what about the, the two of you? What, uh, what would you consider uh, the materiality of our homes in 2050? Um, I don't know about 2050, that's 30 years Future. away. But uh, I can't even see the next 10 years, honestly. But uh, of course, like I can talk about the present. Like now I'm in Sweden since a year. And um, I'm super uh, excited to actually explore seaweed as there's an abundance of seaweed as a material in, um, in the Nordic um, countries, I suppose. But I'm going to be exploring it in Sweden. So I learned that there's a lot of seaweed, of course, in other parts of the world as well. But that certainly appears to be one of the materials that we are going to invest in, in the sense of exploring, researching, what can be done out of it. Um, so I, I can think of that as something that I'm really looking forward to seeing how far it goes. Um, 
Yeah, that's super interesting. And what about you, Fernando? What does the future of Mexico or Mexican homes look like? Um, when you ask that question, you know, what, what do you see in 2050? I think of the Jetsons, you know? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> there's always been this idea of like what the future is meant to be like, you know? And so it's the, I mean, we're already living in that, in that Jetsons future with the Alexas and the smart homes and the, you know, you clap your, your hands and lights turn on and all that stuff. So weirdly enough, like, I feel like there's, there's, a, there's an ongoing trend that I hope it, it, it survives it just being a trend, which is going back to somewhat of a neo-vernacular reality, you know? So it's going back to, back to basic, back to materials that make us feel connected to the earth uh, without necessarily, you know, going back to being cavemen. But I think, I think there's going to be more and more of that, you know? I think uh, it's not necessarily about the super... Uh, technological, cold, concrete, and glass homes, you know? Or I think it's going to be perhaps a very simple future of, of just things that we want to touch and we want to be, you know, laying on that is going to make us not get sick and feel good with our environment. Going back to basics, in a way. I think so. And we've all learned today that technology is also so much more than just the emerging technologies, but also our ancestral knowledge and everything around us. But now we are going to actually open it up for questions. I'm sure that there are many questions uh, that have popped up and <laughs> there are many hands. So, um, um, yeah, I will just take the first one here. Hi. We were discussing before the, the materials that you'll find in London, uh, bulrushes or, or hemp. Um, but I was just thinking, obviously the problem is the cost of living in London. If you, if you make things out of bulrushes or hemp, you'll have to sell them for prices that are extortionate by anyone else's standards. Um, so, I suppose, is there a barrier for people who would live in the UK like, my, like myself? to avoiding globalization, to doing, as you suggest, having a perimeter of where you get your materials from, where you source things. I couldn't do that. I'd probably starve. No, I think, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And what we're doing with those kinds of principles in mind, because it is so challenging to make something handcrafted and at an affordable price in London, for sure. I can't even afford some of the things I design myself. So I think what we're doing with this particular project is this idea of pairing manufacturers with different craftspeople and artists and creatives to make things more affordable. And so it, it comes down to the way something is produced. And so if a manufacturer has the ability to kind of work with some of these materials, in a much more kind of like, I guess, highly productive way, rather than too handcrafted or as a combination of things or tools that can enable something a bit more kind of efficient. I don't even like that word, but it's the only word I can think of. But um, yeah, it's really about like pairing those two worlds together and making it something that is affordable. Because we do have these remits that we have to work within the the highest price point we're having to face with is 250 pounds. 
So that's cheap in comparison to like some of the products that actually are being created within this, um, this rush farm, for example. So this, these are the kind of kinks we're trying to iron out and figure out ways in which that can actually happen in a much more affordable way. So it's about the manufacturing paired with the farm, basically. More questions? One here in the back. Hola. Uh, we've been talking about international trade agreement system, reverse migration, labor, climate justice. But when we talk about new materials in the context of urban concentrations, it seems unavoidable to fall into the realm of commodification. Every single person in this room, including me, has a label saying material. So I want to ask you, how you've been advancing and which are your recommendations for a pedagogy of increasing our relations and not our possessions for all the materials you work with ancestrally have been part of a divinity. That means in a secular society, a life-giving entity that um, provides because otherwise we are just talking about trends. When we talk about large scale subsidies and how we make people uh, get something that is new and fancy, how can we work from a perspective of being acknowledgeable and how we can create a new meaning instead of just a new need? Thank you. Gracias. Um, I, guess, I guess we have to break the question down in, in, in order. <laughs> but uh, um, I suppose, oh God, I don't know. <laughs> All right, in terms of, in terms of yes, you're, you're right. In terms of culture and in terms of the relationship, almost divine relationship that you have to materials, I think that's something that is, is very interesting to analyze with traditional communities. But I think at the end of the day is, is the relationship that you have with, with a material that can be, become almost a divine um, exercise. I mean, if you think about spirituality, it's about understanding oneself, you know, and it's about um, trying to make sense of the world. And so when you look at things like going for natural materials, going for craft, going for all of these things. It's also about self-care, you know, and, and, and for example, I'm, al I'm almost gonna link up to the previous question, you know, about you asking like, how, how can you live like this in London? And I, I lived in London for 13 years, so I, so I have some experience there. And I think like, for example, now that I'm back in Mexico, I, I notice how little options we have in Mexico for, for hobbyist, hobbyism, you know? Like, like for example, like, like, uh, like buying, wood crafting tools, you know, it's impossible here. It's like, I don't even know where to go. Like, I ordered them from somewhere else because there's just not even a market for that, you know, because you just hire a carpenter, which is a big difference in London in, or, or in the UK, you know, maybe not necessarily in, in central London, but in the UK, it's very common for you to have your, your garage workshop, you know, and, and, and to make certain things yourself. Uh, I would almost say that is more common than in Mexico City. 
Um, so the act of making and the act of crafting and being in touch with materials, uh, I think has to do more with like, you know, when you think of, sorry, when you think of affordability as well, you know, people spend thousands and thousands of pounds in getting the right tools to craft their, you know, little stool that could be, you know, way cheaper to just go in Ikea and, and get, you know, but it, that stool, if they make it, they're not going to throw it away, you know, and, 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 and people don't mind that at the end of the day, you know, if you look at it cost-wise, it costed 10 times more. It doesn't matter because it has that personal attachment, which is not too dissimilar for someone, you know, in an indigenous community spending, you know, I don't know how many weeks weaving a basket, you know. Perhaps they could also go to the market where, you know, now there's plastic baskets everywhere. So it's about that, that feeling of, of satisfaction, that feeling of connection, and that feeling of, 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 of pride of, of something that you, you created. Um, I think that's part of your question answered. I, I, don't, know, I don't know if you want to jump in about subsidies. <laughs> <laughs> I can maybe respond to the pedagogy part a bit more um, because there's something that I've created in terms of like including divinity, mysticism, spirituality, the immaterial, as well as the practical side of things. And it's 12 steps, basically. And I've taken the analogy of the AA, a 12-step program. And it really kind of like applies to our addiction to consumption. So these 12 steps takes you through different stages of weaning yourself off this idea of toxic consumption. So we begin by centering everything around the material first and building a relationship towards that. And then it goes immaterial, virtual, individual, community, planetary, behaviors, mindsets, systems, time. Oh my God, you're gonna trump me here now. But like time, futures, and scales. And so all of these different steps allow you to go through different processes of getting you to that place where you can kind of find some sort of equilibrium of sorts. And this is something that I've applied in my teaching practices within architecture, textiles, um, lots of different courses that I teach on. And it's worked so far. <laughs> And they have been my guinea pigs. And this year in particular with my architecture students, um, they really had to trust me because with, especially with the subject like architecture, there's so many barriers that you have to cross and so many kinds of rules. Especially in the UK, we have REBA. So we have to go through these seven stages. I'm not even an architect or trained in this subject. So there's a really big learning that I have to go through with all of that too, but I just disobey the rules anyway. So it's, it was really surprising as to how much unlearning that I had to get them through for them to then learn properly and also relearn. 
So everything is framed around decolonizing and decarbonizing with the course. So it's very in alignment with the things that I'm doing too. So there was, it was very intense, but I took them to material therapy. I had sessions with them doing that, and the quiz, obviously, and the horoscopes, and all of these kind of forms of divinity. So they have a much more respectful relationship towards the material world. Sital, will you be my life coach? No. <laughs> We have time for one or two more questions. Over there. Hello, this is for Akaksha, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I think it will be great if uh, you can share a bit of this with us, considering the scale of IKEA. Um, How, how to achieve a balance or what are the principles and the actions behind achieving or trying to achieve a balance between planetary responsibility and big scale production or trying to achieve like a mainstream con consumption? That on one side and also it would be great if you can uh, maybe share with us if IKEA has metrics of success beyond profits and uh, revenue and how to develop this like for people that maybe are trying to develop a business like in a very practical way uh, yeah um, so the first part of your question was how to achieve a balance um, i can i can explain um, how we work internally uh, when we're designing products um, We are working on the principles of democratic design, which are five principles. Uh, we are uh, taking care from the beginning of the process when we're making anything, which is the form, function, price, quality, and sustainability. Earlier, um, back in the day, it, sustainability wasn't part of the democratic design principles. But now it is one of the most important um, parts of the five factors of democratic design. So I think um, just as a rule of thumb, like when you follow all those five principles to design something, then you're kind of ensuring uh, whether the product has um, a good function that ensures, say, long-lasting quality. Um, And then if you talk about um, sustainability aspect, then you include like what materials are we using? Um, how are we making those products? Uh, the people who are making it, are they paid fair wages? Are there better working conditions for that? And we have Iway. Um, it's a method to secure that. Um, and then now we are also um, kind of working around the principles of circularity. What does that mean when we bring that into the way we design? Uh, when we look, about, uh, look at anything, then it should be either reusable, uh, refurbished, uh, can be repaired, uh, can be remanufactured. So how, uh, when you design something, is it possible to assemble and disassemble it so that you can remanufacture like different parts? There's a lot of standardization. So can you actually make a chair with the components that's used in, this, in another chair, in another company even. So 
you know, if it like kind of goes out of life, then can you use those components to make something else? Um, and then when everything else is um, out of the question, then can it be recyclable? So um, how you use materials, but also the proper way to combine them. Like, does it even make sense to combine glass with plastic with wood? Maybe not. Um, maybe it is crucial to combine materials sometimes to ensure good functionality, but then those materials should be easily separatable. So there is a lot um, how you can actually ensure that whatever you are designing is really well thought right from the beginning part of the process. Um, for your second question, sorry, can you repeat that again? Um, if IKEA has um, metrics of success beyond business success, beyond profits, and what are those? Uh, yeah, um, one of, like from my perspective as a designer, um, one of the projects that, um, not projects, initiatives um, that I've highlighted is the social entrepreneurship initiatives, which is uh, primarily about working with social entrepreneurs all over the world, wherever it's needed, wherever there are vulnerable communities that need a better standard of living. Uh, so we are partnering with them. A lot of times it is social entrepreneurs, um, you know, like, um, which, which are maybe medium-sized or small-sized, but then there are also some organizations that are primarily there to empower women, say, in like, um, yeah, more conflicted regions of some um, part of the world, especially like sometimes in India and also Jordan. Um, so there, uh, profit-making is not uh, the main objective. The main objective is then to um, collaborate and work uh, with the communities, with the artisans, um, to ensure that they have a decent um, means of living. And of course, there's a lot more uh, that uh, maybe I'm not the best person to answer and then you need to call somebody from the management of IKEA. <laughs> but uh, that is one part that I know that I can speak of. Can I add a little bit to that? Because I work on a completely different scale, but the metrics of a lot of what we do is, is that. It's like, can we create more ecological wealth, you know? Because, for example, with the, with the case of the agaves, you know, we've been, we, I spent basically a big chunk of what I made, but almost all, everything that I made into planting agaves. And this was at the beginning of the project seven years ago, you know, like obviously not a successful project back then. But it was about like saying, okay, if we start to retain water today, if we start to increase the water of the wells, uh, we're going to have not only, yes, more agaves that produce fiber, but more corn, uh, but also a future where these people are not going to migrate because they have no more water, you know. So it is also good for business because it's an investment that will return in monetary gains, but ultimately it's about saying, well, you know, if all of these people leave this place, I have no workforce anymore, and where are they going to go? And that's something that, even though I'm talking about the scale of one town, it can be zoomed out and look at it globally, you know? If we don't start to change those metrics, 
we're going to be faced with a shit show. We're going to be faced with mass migration from these really hot areas into, you know, cooler areas. And that's going to be, you know, a whole new challenge, which is not going to be uh, pretty because it's not only an economical challenge, but it's a social challenge. So you have to start changing the, the parameters of your metrics, no matter what the scale is. Thank you so much, all of you. I think that um, we are running out of time. Unfortunately, I could definitely talk about this uh, with all of you uh, all night, but there is also some more beer left at the bar and uh, some more conversations to be had after this panel. So um, a quick summary would be that maybe we don't actually have to look so far there is a lot of things already around us that we can tap into, that we can have more conversation with our local craftspeople um, and basically start to repair our local environments by designing with and in symbiosis with uh, those materials that are around us. Thank you so much. There's also one thing that we, that we actually discussed that I would also like to add in that Seetal said that was so bang on that there's no one solution. Um, there are, you know, many different ways of doing things. Yep. Um, and maybe you can also elaborate. Because <laughs> <laughs> it came from you, so I have to like pass the baton. It's fine, you can paraphrase, don't worry. It's so good. So um, oh my God, you put me on the spot now. I mean, there's no one solution is yes. the... So basically, the, the premise of the conversation was this idea of a problem and solution mindset is very problematic because the, every solution is, feels like it's very fixed in what it actually has to offer and every solution will always incur a problem because everything is always in flux. The only thing we can actually rely on is, well, the only constant is change. And if that's the thing that we have to like work with, then a solution isn't right. So this idea of one solution mindset of like a, a single solution fits for everybody doesn't work. And who gets to decide what that problem is in the first place? But so, with that in mind, I kind of have this idea of like figuring out alternatives, possibilities. And for me, that's the space I exist in. And I hope that more people can exist in that space because it's more accepting of difference. And that's really the ultimate space we want to get to. Thank you for tuning in to listen to these inspiring speakers. As our conversations continue on ground in Mexico City, please join us on Instagram at Space10 for live updates. Sign up to our newsletter via Space10.com. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. See you soon.